Common bienvenue, Kenichiwa. It's time for the Army Inquisition yet again, episode 186 on Sunday, the 30th of May. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Matt. And uh, Armish Ben's on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan, I think, tonight. Yeah. Just two of us. But we've got Matt here from the Apocalypse YouTube channel. How are we doing, Matt? Pretty good. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Yeah. Nice to see you. I've been uh, soaking up your videos over the weekend. Um, you've been researching the lost city of Atlantis, but before we get into that, I think you should probably maybe tell us a bit about your background and how on earth you ended up on this journey, going down this rabbit hole looking for Atlantis. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, my background really, um, I've been an engineer since 2005, so that's like 16 years now. I'm both electro, well, electrical and mechanical. Um, I've always been interested in things like um, the alternative sort of history movement, things pioneered by Graham Hancock and Randall Carson, for example. Um, Atlantis has always been interesting. That's the the, the very taboo one that uh, you're not allowed to talk about. You can use the A word. Um, But it was really, I was watching um, Randall Carson's Cosmographia um, podcast and YouTube channel and he did a, a series on Atlantis, and he suggested um, there was some evidence that the whole of the Azores Plateau might have been above sea level um, at the end of the Ice Age. And I thought to myself, well, if this is true, um, sort of a year before that podcast, there was a European agency who compiled a load of bathymetric data and turned it into one big, giant European bathymetric map so I thought, well, now's as good a time as any to try and look for it. And I basically used Plato's dialogues as a guide. And right at the center of the Azores Plateau, there's a feature um, that's identical in size to what Plato describes as the lost city of Atlantis. So that's, that's you know, how I got here, really. Now, um, a lot of people, I wasn't familiar with this term bathymetric before I started uh, watching your YouTube videos. To, so explain what the bathymetric stuff is so bathymetric scanning is basically um you you get like a survey vessel and behind it you tow a device that outputs usually something like sonar and then you just scan the sea floor below it and you get a 3d image and you can compile it with other bathymetric scans and and create large maps from them basically and they, they they don't have the best resolution, but you can usually get enough detail to tell you where certain depths are and major features, and the shallower you are, the better the images are, basically. Right, so bath- bathymetric or bathymetry, this is the technology that, that they use when they're doing surveys of the ocean floor. Yeah, that's right. So right. they usually the surveys are usually done um, either for mineral or just for um, exploration of hazards and just for research purposes. Right. Okay. So, 
Sorry, I was just going to say, so is it kind of like this resource, is it an open source kind of thing? You could use it for free, it's just on the internet and anybody can kind of access it. That's right, yeah. So the European one, it's, um, I think it's called EMOD Net, something, something like that. And they've just compiled basically all of the bathymetric scans into an online browser. It's very much like um, Google Earth, basically. <laughs> That's cool. And how much, uh, how much of the ocean floor have you actually is, is on there? So they've they've got most of the ocean floor on there, yeah. um, not in as much detail as they've got for Europe, but for basically any European territory is is mapped in some detail. Right. Um, not some of it's much higher quality than others. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's an ongoing project, and I, I know that there's some collaboration with other agencies going on at the moment where there's a mission um, where they're trying to do this on a global scale now rather than just in Europe. So that's a, co- a collaboration between various um, agencies. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned the platonic dialogues at Timaeus and the Critias. Maybe um, for people who aren't familiar, you should maybe run down where this story of Atlantis comes from, the story of Solon and Egypt and, and all that and how it yeah, relates. Sure. So basically, um, Plato is is famous for writing a number of dialogues, and there's two of his dialogues, which are the only sources that are attributed to um, Atlantis. So there's other dialogues and other um, stories potentially that could be talking about Atlantis, but they don't call it Atlantis. So um, Plato's ones are probably the most important. And he apparently got this story of Atlantis from Solon, and it featured in, in two of his dialogues. And what's interesting is that these dialogues aren't particularly focused on on Atlantis, really. Their, their, their main objective, really, is, is to um, sort of glorify Athens more than anything else. So the amount of detail that Plato goes into um, regarding Atlantis, it, it almost doesn't make sense to go into that level of detail. So there are other other people that have come along um, shortly after Plato's time, like Crantor. Um, Crantor was born shortly after Plato died, and he he eventually became the leader of the Platonic Academy. And he said that there, there were still pillars in Egypt um, at the time of Crantor's life that, that told the story of Atlantis, so it was true. Um, and also we have Plutarch, and we we still use Plutarch's biographies today to fill in gaps in history, and he also claimed that it was a true story. And you mentioned there about how they're sort of, um, what's not, not anonymous, what's the word? Um, they, they sort of stick out a bit in Plato's dialogue. I mean, when you read it, do you think he's saying this, he's talking about Atlantis as if it's common knowledge, like every like other people in that era knew about it? Or is he purposely relaying this information? Because I'm trying to think, I'm trying to get in the head of the people at that time, and we don't know what sources they had access to and whatnot. I'm just trying to think if you've tried to get into the, the mind of, of the author in that in that sense. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um it's difficult because if if we go back to if we go back to Crantor again, I think Crantor seems to state that it was common knowledge to the Athenians. <laughs> so it, it wasn't it wasn't just um, you know it wasn't just um, going through Solon to Plato. It, it seemed to be a story that was familiar to other people of the time in Greece. Yeah, it's a strange one, and uh, one of the most striking things about the Plato's account is that he gives a date. 
for the destruction of Atlantis. Yeah, so the, the date's really important because if we work it out backwards, um, I think it's supposed to be 9,600 years before the time of Solon, which if we add on our date today, that's 11,600 years ago, which is exactly uh, when the Younger Dryas ended and we transitioned into the Holocene, which is the era that we, we live in now. Right, so the Younger Dryas, we have talked about it a while ago. We had um, the Cosmic Tusk on, didn't we? George Howard, last well, probably about a year ago. Mm-hmm. So for those who didn't hear that one, the, the Younger Dryas, Dryas was this climatic epoch, if you like, of a couple of thousand years, which sort of is at the boundary, isn't it, between the Holocene period, which we're in now, and the previous uh, ice-bound, ice-locked, ice age yeah, that's right. Basically, um, the last glacial maximum, so that's when the Ice Age was at its peak, when it was at the coldest, that was about twenty to 18,000 years ago. It started to warm up. We started to come out of the Ice Age, and then something happened um, about 12,800 years ago where it started to cool down again. And there's uh, a growing body of evidence to, to suggest that it was something extraterrestrial, so either like a bolide or meteorite impact or or combination of impacts. Or some people now think it could be something like a a huge solar flare is the other alternative theory. Yeah, that's uh, Robert Schock's theory, I think, isn't it? The uh, solar flare. I think so, yeah. I think there are some similarities in in some of the evidence. Um, I think it's something to do with you you find a certain amount of of helium-3 in in certain compounds in certain areas. I'm I'm leaning more towards the... um, to the impact hypothesis rather rather than the solar flare. But uh, to be honest, as far as my Atlantis research is concerned, either either's fine for me. Yeah, because all you're looking for is the catalyst for the, the melting of the ice and the subsequent flooding. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because um, that's what Plato tells us happens, isn't it, with Atlantis? Yeah, so as far as the story goes, the, uh, the Athenians were at war with the Atlanteans and... Uh, Basically, it doesn't give a time period. It kind of implies that very shortly after the war ends, there's a global cataclysm that kills off both the Athenians and the Atlanteans at the same time, and they're in two different places in the world. Now, this is something curious, that the account says that the Atlanteans were at war with the Athenians. And if we think back to that time period, I mean, that's something that sort of doesn't gel in my head. Yeah, um, I I don't know how true that might be. That might just be Plato embellishing the story yeah. for the for the glory of, of of the Athenians at the time. Yeah, or Solon, presumably. or Solon. Yeah. Um, the reason I say that is because there are other stories that run very closely to the Atlantis story. They they never they never call. Um, the place of creation Atlantis because there's there's one that's very famous in particular I know Graham Hancock made this one famous but there's a number of inscriptions on the temple at Edfu and they, they tell a story that's very similar to the Atlantis story but there's you know it's basically the, a lot of the physical descriptions are the same but it, again it's glorifying their gods whereas you know Plato's <laughs> almost switched the story to, to glorify Athens yeah for his for his for his own audience essentially exactly yeah yeah, and, you know, flood myths are ubiquitous. They're everywhere around the world. Um, it's just a common theme in, in ancient civilizations and sort of oral traditions is, is that there there have been catastrophic floods. 
Um, the interesting thing about the Atlantis myth is that it's, it's suggesting a, a very highly evolved civilization that was terminated by it, which is what really um, excites me and what I find interesting about Hancock's work as well. Yeah, I, I think that um, even in the Stone Age, if you were, um, if you could develop very, um, well, if you had very developed mathematical skills, you'd be capable of doing a lot of things. You, you wouldn't necessarily need modern electronics. You wouldn't necessarily um, need to have even discovered um, or, or had the ability to mine metals. You, there's a lot you can do with stone. In, in, in certain ways, stone's a superior material to metal. It's just much harder to to work it yeah so um the, the the other evidence we've got for advanced civilization at that time period as well is is, is the uh, the building of gobekli tepe um and although it was quite an advanced site so gobekli tepe for anyone who doesn't know it's it's a place in turkey um it's it's almost like stonehenge but more advanced so um, there's very, very detailed carvings there. They're high-relief carving, so that means the carvings protrude from the actual pillars. So that means you have to remove material to get the uh, to get the carvings to appear. So that's that's a very difficult thing to do. And if you make a mistake, you have to start again, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's one. There's a picture on one of your videos, and I think of the pillars, and I think it's got it looks like a puma or a jaguar or something coming out of the rock. I mean, it's amazing. Yes, um, you know that that's. Um, that's a level of craftsmanship that you, you would think that that belongs to a civilization rather than um, a hunter-gatherer group. And I think this, there's some new evidence now they're suggesting that there, there actually was settlements at Gobekli Tepe because they were they were suggesting it was just done by hunter-gatherers. But I think the, the tide is turning on that now. They, they have to because the whole... Yeah. Everything that they've been taught and they've learned and they've passed on to the next generation of young archaeologist tells us you know that this can't be true so the amount of evidence the evidence has to be overwhelming for for them to accept you know uh settled civilizations at that time period they have to be drag kicking and screaming <laughs> yes yeah it's uh, I, I think there's a number of issues i think i think it's healthy to be skeptical um you, you can't just believe what everybody says because you know, otherwise we just have infinite mythologies and we have people coming up with well, all sorts of nonsense, really. So it's healthy to be sceptical. But at the same time, you've got to be open-minded and you can't let your ego, um, you know, cloud the truth, potentially. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that my research is, is probably going to be quite controversial and you know, I'm, I'm critical of my own research. I'm sceptical of myself as well. Uh, I think one, one of the problems in academia is that people... You know, their whole identity is based on their research, and if if your research turns out to be false, you know that's it's almost it's uh, it's almost like an ego death, isn't it? You, you have to it's it's like mourning. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Um, again, going back to Graham Hancock, he talks about this with um, Egyptologists, doesn't he? He's had uh, quite a few. I remember seeing yeah. the video of him. I think he was. I don't know exactly what was going on, but I think he was having a debate with um, was it is it Zahi Hawass? The, that's uh, the one, yeah, yeah. I chief, think that's quite that's quite famous, yeah. Yeah, chief Egyptologist at, uh, well, for Egypt, I think it's the Egyptian head of antiquities or something, and uh, he stormed off in a huff, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah. We we all have our bad days, but that's that's. <laughs> 
that's on the internet forever now, isn't it? It's 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 it's, it's not going to go away. No. So, so you heard from Randall Carlson about this potential location being in the Azores. Um, so, what was your what was your first step? What would what did you do? Um, basically, I, I looked up Plato's dialogues for myself. Um, I remember reading him as a kid, and I just couldn't I couldn't get through it at all. It was just none of it made any sense. So it was, uh, you know, I was a bit more patient as an adult to try and wade through it. But I was trying to take it more as a literal thing. I wasn't trying to bend any of the details, as it were. I was trying to almost bullet point things in there that could help lead me to Atlanta. So, like I previously said. Um, I, I was using this um, bathymetry website, so the, the website that's got all of the underwater seafloor scans on it. And basically the first thing I thought to do is, well, Plato said it's at the centre of this large island. Um, and by the way, the, the Azores Plateau is the only sort of sizable um, oceanic, or sorry, um, continental-type crust in, in the whole of the Atlantic between Europe and the Americas. So that, that's really the only place it could be. So, what, what does that mean? What do you mean by continental crust? Basically, when you um, look at plate boundaries, they normally form either oceanic crust or they form continental-type crust. And right. oceanic crust is, is thinner um, and continental crust is, is thicker. I, I, there's, there's probably other physical differences as well, but what it means with continental crust is that it protrudes upwards, basically. So all of so if you if you look at the Azores Plateau, it's, it's now two thousand meters below sea level today, but it, all of a sudden it just like all continental boundaries, it, it just falls off of this huge plateau. It's the same around Europe and the Americas, and it's just too deep to be exploring. There's, there's no way it could have been above water anything surrounding it so if you're looking at oceanic crust it's going to be far less likely that it was it was above water right so right so is the ocean because I'm, I'm an idiot i don't know anything is the is, is the ocean generally a lot deeper than two thousand feet so yeah the, the, the plateau is two thousand meters and then um meters large, yeah there's large large parts of the atlantic are something that about four thousand meters and there's other parts that are much much deeper Wow, and then there's in the Pacific. You've got the Mariana Trench as well, haven't you? Which is I, I don't know how deep that is. That's that's yeah. even deeper again. Right. So um, you can tell from the bathymetry that this sort of area of the Azores is it protrudes upwards a bit more than the general sort of ocean. Yeah, that's right. So um, what I tried to do really is I went through Plato's dialogues, and he described the the island of Atlantis being greater in extent than. Asia and Libya put together, and that basically, in the context of the day, it doesn't mean what we in the West think of Asia as today. It's, it's a small part of the Middle East, and Libya's um, a part of North Africa. So you're looking for something of that magnitude, maybe not necessarily the exact size. And the Azores Plateau has a surface area twice that of Great Britain, so that's a pretty big, pretty big piece of, of uh, continental-type crust in the middle of the ocean. Right, so it ties in with roughly with Plato's description of the extent of Atlantis, the Azores Plateau. Now, one issue is I, I'm a big Randall Carlson fan, and I've heard him say a few times that um, during the last ice age, before the Younger Dryas, that um, sea levels were approximately 400 foot lower than today. I don't know. Yeah. 
Now, we're talking 2,000 metres, aren't we, for the Azores? So there must be something else going on here. Yes. Um, so the, the global accepted sea level rise since the last glacial maximum is about 400 me- feet and... Uh, have you had a barbecue today <laughs> no I've, I've had a i've had a haggis so, uh, <laughs> i wouldn't call that meat <laughs> <laughs> but yes yeah, so, yeah going off on a bit of a tangent there but uh, yeah basically um 400 feet and it basically ranges around the world from about 120 to 140 meters Right. Um, so what I've tried to do is I've tried to look up papers that could back up um, or back a case for the, the Azores Plateau being at least 2,000 metres higher than it is now. Um, if you've watched Randall Carson, you'll know he's already presented some older papers of, of core samples that were taken along the Middle Atlantic Ridge, but I'm, I was actually trying to look for a, for a mechanism. So the, the core sample suggests there's beach sand in places that it shouldn't be. It's too deep. Yeah. Um, so I spent quite some time looking through um, papers written by actual geologists. I'm, I'm, I'm not a geologist, so I'm holding my hands up now to that. So um, th- there was one paper in particular, uh, and they, they've got a hypothesis that, that suggests that the Azores hotspot, so the, the, we should probably say that the Azores plateau is, is quite unique. It's, it's, a, it's a triple junction. So that, what it means is there's three continental plates in that same area. And one of the unique things about it is it's also divergent. All three are moving away from each other. Right. Yeah, this goes back to, like, Pangaea, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So uh, the other interesting thing about the Azores is that if you if you reverse Pangaea, um, if, if, you, if you looked at the world in, in a spaceship and hit rewind and went back 200 million years, everything went backwards. The centre of Pangaea, where it splits up, is the, is the Azores, Azores triple junction. That's weird. Yeah. And a great place for an ancient alien civilization to develop. (laughs) (laughs) It is weird. So this is the only place... Is this the only place on the world where you have this meeting? It must be, then. I think there are are other triple junctions. Oh, right. Like I said, I'm not not a... a, um, I'm not a geologist, so oh. I, I'm, I'm not aware of everything, but it, it looks like where, where the Azores Triple Junction is, um, it, it hasn't moved a lot over the last few million years. You, you don't see the hotspot tracks you see in other, in other regions. So if you, if you look at somewhere like Idaho, um, you can see where the volcanoes have moved over the hotspots over, over just a few million years. You see these, these tracts of, of land where the, the hotspots have passed over over just a short period of time, and the Azores Plateau over the last 20 million years, it's split apart a little, but it's it's not really moved over that spot. Um, something I found out recently, someone's pointed out to me that there's um, something called an LLSVP below the Azores hotspot. So it's some sort of, well, when, when you measure... Um, when you, when you take tomographic measurements, so I think you, you're looking at seismic scans through through the Earth now. I think you just use to do that. You, you obviously, you can't ring the Earth. You wait for an earthquake to happen, basically, and you you try and analyze the data. Right. Um, but there's 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 regions of, of of low velocity, so it means the waves are traveling through this region quite slowly. Oh. I think one of one of the most accepted theories for this is the uh, is the impact that caused the, the moon to form. So. Um, <sighs> If you're, you know, we're really going off on a tangent now. But, right. um, most, 
most people are probably aware that there's a theory for how the moon was formed. So the, the Earth was smaller a long, long time ago, billions of years ago, um, and a, a Mars-sized planet likely hit the Earth, and that became part of Earth, and a small part of the Earth flew off and formed the moon, basically. And there's there's evidence that this um, planet was denser than Earth, and, it, and it's been spread over a couple of regions, but it's not spread evenly. And one of these regions is directly under the Azores hotspot. And because it's denser, we can probably assume that it's got quite a lot of radioactive material in it. It could explain why the Azores hotspot's there. Wow. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. So there's, some, there's something going on under, like below the crust, or where the Azores is. Yeah, and and this this other paper. So we're going back to where I started from with the this other paper that I I read. Um, they were suggesting there's periodic activity in the Azores hotspot. So this is between every five and seven million years. It comes out of this this um, low activity period, and it's so active that it causes the crust to triple in thickness. So this you know you, you can so. Um, the crust is more buoyant than the material underneath, so this could expl- this could partly explain why um, the Azores hotspot might have been above water. And also, you're going to have significantly higher pressures underneath. So you've got you've got an, an upwelling of pressure, and you've also got a thickening crustal material as well. So, so, so the ocean floor would effectively kind of rise up and down over millions of years, essentially. Yes, that's right, and because the um, because the Azores hotspot is is on a, a triple divergent junction, the, the plates are, aren't supporting each other. They're only supported by the material underneath. Mm. Oh right, yeah, they're not they're not like sewn together, are they? No. So if, you, if you look at the Himalayas, for example, you, you've got plates that are well, they're, they're holding each other up because they're being pushed mm. towards each other. So they're, they're not fully supported by the material underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. That was what I was gonna sort of compare it to was the uh, the Himalayas and Everest and stuff. So, uh, and that kind of, of of motion really. And the other thing as well is from to my mind, something that's coming to my mind is the. Um, I'm sure I've sort of read or watched something where civilizations tend to form along um, sort of like tectonic plates uh, where they kind of meet each other because there tends to be aquifers, minerals and things like that are pushed up to the surface as well, essentially. Yeah, that's definitely true. If it's even even relatively you know, modern places um, or the places in our own country, um, if you look at Dartmoor, for example, there's all these settlements that follow what's called the Stipplepath fault line. So there's a, a granitic fault line that goes all the way across Devon. And you see the old settlements travel across this because it would have been good for farming, good for mineral extraction. Mm. Just like, uh, wow. you know, it, it, it is, it's great for farming in the Azores because it's, it's, it's so rich in minerals. Yeah. This is like taking guns, germs, and steel to the extreme, isn't it? It's not about just about the right kind of crops or the climate. Being near a, a plate tectonic, what do they call them, where they meet? Fault line, is it? Fault line, yeah, I suppose. Is it? Being near it- fault lines, the ultimate <laughs> leg up you need if you want to start a civilization. It's crazy. Um, you know, you talked about... Or, in your videos, and I've heard Randall Carlson talk about it as well, this um, idea of isostatic depression where you've got 
maybe this could play a part in the Azores. Maybe you should explain how that worked with the weight of the ice and whatnot. Okay, so yeah, isostasy is is when you have um, plates that are supported by the material underneath. So if if you've got divergent plates, you you have pure isostasy where it's a balance between the weight on the mantle and the weight of the crust, basically. And if you were looking at top-loading isostasy, if if you had a glacier melting um, on some continental landmass, that weight would run off into the ocean, so you would see the uh, you would see the continental part start to rise out. So the land masses would start to rise up from the ocean, and then you get a depress um, would yeah, rise up relative to the ocean, and then you see you actually see the oceanic um, crust. So where the triple junction is would be a really good example. You would actually see an increase in weight there. So that the actual sea floor is getting further and further below sea level. Right, yeah. so so yeah. rather than the continental crust being pressed down, it's the the oceanic crust around it is getting this extra weight of water that's been locked up in the ice sheets above North America, pushing down on the oceanic crust. Is that the gist? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. So you you'll get you get a re you get a rebound um, on the land, and you'll get a depression in the sea as right. the as the weight is transferred from one region to another. Uh, I heard Randall somewhere use a really interesting analogy. It's like uh, taking your butt off a settee. That's and, right. Yeah, and, that, yeah and that's it springs one, up. Yeah. The uh, cushion springs up when you. So yeah. So we've got all this weight in water tied up across North America. It's hard for us to get our heads to wrap our heads around what would happen if there was. I mean, the key is it, we're we're relying on the younger dress being a very fairly sudden sharp melting of the ice to produce this effect aren't we um yeah obviously you would have if it melted slow you'd still get um top loading isostasy it would have just happened over a much longer period of time but what we see from a number of um different studies one of one of the most famous one is the the barbados um sea level where they've they, they've measured sea level changes in barbados i'm not sure why that region's particularly good maybe it's just a nice place to do research <laughs> but for some reason you can get excellent data at barbados on global sea level changes and you see there's there's a couple of of huge events one of them is called meltwater pulse 1a which happens after the the last glacial maximum and the one concerning um, the time period of Atlantis is melt meltwater pulse 1b. And you're seeing an unbelievably huge amount of, of water melting from, um, well, in particular, the North American continent. So obviously that's that's running off. The North American continent starts to rise out of the mantle, which is the isostasy. And then that water then has to go somewhere. It's going into the ocean basins, and then the ocean floor is being um, driven into the mantle below. So you're getting a corresponding load change and a corresponding change in in the continental heights. Yeah, it's so diff- uh, difficult to to. I mean, they must use must have to use really sophisticated computer models to even get close to explain how this happens. I heard Randall say like the the ice sheet was maybe two miles thick, two miles tall over North America and Canada. That's right. I mean, yeah, we it, just can't get our heads around it, can we? Yeah, it's almost, it's almost impossible to believe it, isn't it? So, or to, to try and to try and imagine it. But the the evidence is there. We know it was there. We know we know it melted quickly, 
Um, so there, there has to be a reason why it melted quickly. So this this goes back to the the uh, well, first the, the first part was the the younger Dryas impact hypothesis. But uh, what caused what caused the younger Dryas to end? Was that another impact? I think there's more research probably needs to be done on that part. Yeah. Our uh, tell us about the the uh, structure you found with the bathymetry. I say structure loosely. I don't know if it's a structure or uh, a natural phenomenon, but this, these rings that you've that you've been looking at. So, uh, given given the size of this thing, I, I think it's a natural phenomenon. So, in the centre of the Azores Plateau, you've got these concentric rings, uh, which correspond to the concentric rings that Plato describes in his dialogue. So, Plato says there are at the centre of of the island of Atlantis. There's there's the city and the city is formed um, of three land masses surrounded by three canals of water, and he gives very, very specific dimensions for those. And he says that basically it equates to the, the outer the outer canal is 27 stadia in diameter, and we know how big a stadia is. So it's about 185 metres is the most commonly used unit. And uh, so that, that 27 gives us about 4,996 metres, and this concentric circle ring, that the outermost one, is 4,996 metres at the centre of the plateau. So that corresponds to what, what Plato's talking about. Um, it looks to be about three stadia in width as well. It, it looks like there's a lot of sediment in the region, so it's difficult to tell. But Plato says the outer canal is three stadia in width. And then this, this feature at the bottom, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the the next canal inside, and that one's 15 stadia in diameter, which is the same as what Plato described. So that's, that's another match, and it, it looks about two stadia wide, which is also what Plato described. The only one that's really missing is the, the third central canal. Um, there looks to be possibly a trace of it there, but there's a, you can see a lot of sediment in the bathymetric data. So it's, it, it needs further investigation, basically. Um, and this is, this is what I'm trying to put a case together for. Really, my my videos are, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping someone maybe maybe James Cameron will watch it one day and we'll find out we'll we'll find out on the news he's been he's been out in the Azores making some movie I don't know Terminator Azores or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, they, they, they can't get any worse at this point, can they? So, uh, <laughs> no. Why not? I mean, um, it's pretty amazing to find anything because we're talking twelve thousand years ago. You've all this disruption like geological disruption i mean it's it's weird that you'd find any evidence in the bathymetry to be honest to me i think if, it, if it's a natural structure um it's going to survive for you know quite a long time yeah. um I've, I've since looked at the um, obviously you've you've seen what i've shown in my videos um i've since looked at some gravity maps of the region and the gravity in that region is much higher so um, what? It's, it's, <laughs> um, so you, basically, if, if you're doing, a, if you use a, a gravity map, you, it will tell you what kind of rocks uh, make up the region. So it's probably something like granite or basalt that make up that natural feature. So it's going to be quite durable, Soft. right? So that's why it's uh, it's it's, it's going to still be there for a long time. It'll probably be there for millions and millions of more years if it is granite or basalt. And another feature that you've you've tied to the Plato account is this. Uh, is it called the Bori Hole? Yeah, that's right. It's it's um, it's a rift valley basically. And if the whole of the Azores Plateau was um, above this above sea level at, um, during the Younger Dryas, 
then this this rift valley could have provided uh, an entryway uh, like a um, a seaway right into the middle of this this giant landmass um because what plato says is he he says that this 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 island is greater than libya and asia combined yet um somehow this city which is at the center is right next to the sea and that kind of didn't make any sense to me and then i started looking at the um the bathymetric data of the azores plateau and, and it kind of like well if this is the place he's describing, actually, it does make sense now because this this huge rift valley could have actually led out all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and it's it's only a short distance away from the center of the island. Yeah, I mean, the other thing you said, I mean, it's roughly the the concentric rings that you found. They're roughly they're roughly five kilometers across in That's diameter. Correct, yeah. Now, to me, I don't know. Is that do you think that's big enough? Or is it too small for like a a large? Or do we think maybe this was maybe the the sort of the citadel, like the royal complex? I mean, what what's your views on that? So if if, if Plato's story is correct, and we assume that there's a metropolis on this island, it's it's almost I guess it's akin to London in the United Kingdom, isn't it? It's the main, it's the capital city. So right, um, if if you've got somewhere that's five kilometers across, you can fit a surprisingly large number of people in there. And then um, everyone else would live in the surrounding regions. Yeah, it'd be interesting to uh, just go on Google Maps and see what like the diameter of the city of London is. Not the M25, but the actual oh, like the yeah. heart of the city of London. See if it's you know r- roughly comparable. But right, so the idea is that this is sort of the maybe the political or administrative centre, and that the rest of the resort because how 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 wide or how biggest sea is always plateau did you say about twice the size of the uk it's about twice the size of great britain surface area wise yeah it's a it's a big space and you would presume if they were an advanced civilization that they would have outposts probably in north south america in africa and europe this would be the ideal location really for, <laughs> for having outposts because if it's right in the middle of the atlantic ocean you know you, you probably 10 days sail to to europe 10 days sail to america under the most favorable conditions did they not have um, uh, transporters like star trek i'm i'm, I'm not um well, <laughs> you're not going to be drawn on ancient aliens I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole <laughs> good for you i mean it, it does in plato's account just says they have triremes so they just they just have sail sailboats basically um I mean, we we could talk aliens, but it's um... <laughs> uh, it's nothing. Um, you know, there's more and more evidence. I mean, the the old, the sort of the Bering Land Bridge uh, hypothesis for the population, the populating of the Americas, is really coming under some heavy flack in over the last few years, and people are suggesting uh, other methods by by sea, primarily of of populating the Americas. I mean, it doesn't. I don't think it's uh, unreasonable at all for there to be um, a civilization with navigation and seafaring at twelve thousand years ago. I, I don't understand the argument for saying that, that there couldn't have been, um, because there's there's a lot of people that say you, you have to have a chronometer, which is basically just an accurate watch to be able to to plot your position. Um, but we could always measure latitude quite well. So as, as long as you just stuck to one latitude, and you, you took you know took the, the the relevant measurements to stay on that latitude, you'd get to where you wanted to eventually. You just wouldn't know how long 
it was going to take you to get there. I mean, a chronometer makes it a lot more convenient. But I mean, um, what's what's the name of that device? That Greek device they found. You watched that documentary on it. Oh right? God, yeah. The, the Icky, Antikythera, is that it? Yeah, Antikythera. That's the one. Yeah. I mean, you, you work in engineering. Mm. I mean, w- that device just looks incredible from concept to execution for the time period. I, I wouldn't want to design that on a computer, let alone on, uh, <laughs> on, on papyrus. But yeah, it's 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 just mathematics, really. It's, it's advanced mathematics, and mm. it's it's interesting. I saw a documentary on that one, and. Even even with the, the misconceptions that they had in Greece, that, that it still works absolutely fine. So there were, there were people that thought planets, um, everything seemed to revolve around our planet. And that made the Antikythera mechanism much more complicated than it needed to be. It could have actually been simpler. But they, 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 they used all this. They figured out the maths of, of what the maths needed to be if everything revolved around our planet. And it still worked. So, yeah, it was very complicated. Um, but the fabrication as well just blows my mind. Looking at the, these cogs and wheels, how precisely they were manufactured. Um, someone's sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say someone's trying to make it now with someone's made with copper it, chisels or something. Yeah, basically. So someone's made it with today's um, technology, and then there's a this PhD student is. <laughs> and gonna try and make it with that's a hell of a phd yeah jesus gonna christ try, gonna try and make it with the technology that they think was available at the time that might be a very long phd <laughs> yeah well i think the other thing as well to mention is that the reason what i've found why archaeology in general and sort of universities and things they don't um sort of subscribe to these kinds of theories that don't have necessarily the evidence is i think it's the term i'm gonna say this wrong i think but it's something called um post and pre processualism i think is the word so in archaeology generally um i I can't remember when this occurred it's sometime in this uh, sorry in the 20th century um there was basically fields of archaeology where people would you know dig stuff up and then they would build an entire civilization around the things that they found whereas and i think that's pre-processualism and then post-processualism is basically they won't say anything now unless there's actual physical evidence that they find that says that yeah people were sailing across the ocean twelve thousand years ago um, which is obviously going to be quite difficult to find you would think i suppose I think it's really the, the genetic evidence, isn't it? That if, I think South America in particular, they're suggesting um, there's traces of Australian Aboriginal DNA in certain right. tribes there, and, it, and it, you don't find that in populations that are there today or the remains of people that, that were there thousands of years ago. And it kind of implies mm. that people have, have sailed across the Pacific. Yeah. Well, the, that's the other thing, isn't it, about the people that sort of island hopped and all the way across um, the Pacific, well, the South Pacific, isn't it? I think, um, and that the 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 distances that, that they achieved, um, and did it, you know, on those tiny little islands. But there you go. Oh, but you, don't forget, in the Pacific, you had the lost continent of Mu. You could just stop <laughs> off there on your way. I've not looked at that one yet. That's your next job, Matt. <laughs> yeah, go and find Mu for us. <laughs> I'll give it a go. 
<laughs> he doesn't look very confident. It's supposed to be ginormous. No. There is there's a lot of, of sunken land between like Australia and um, right. Papua New Guinea, okay. um, down towards Southeast Asia. I mean, there's probably parts of, you almost probably could have walked a lot of the way to Australia from Southeast Asia and just either, you, well, I probably wouldn't want to swim it with the sharks in that water, but you could, <laughs> you could just sail the last part or could even canoe the last part, I would imagine. Really? Right, okay. I mean, I guess part of the problem um, you were saying before, and maybe Matt was saying about the archaeologists being reluctant to go down this road without finding certain levels of hard evidence. Now, it seems to me, if we're looking for a lost civilization pre-Younger Dryas, and we know that most civilizations tend to congregate by the seashore and by rivers and whatnot, that if we were to find any evidence, we're probably going to have to look underwater for it. Yeah, I think that that's probably the most logical thing. I mean, there's a a number of places in off the coast of India, and very large settlements that could date back to the end of the Ice Age, um, and and obviously, like you say, everything does either seem to form or civilizations tend to form either by riverways or or by the coast, and they I think they are starting to find these places now, but it's just so difficult to actually do any do any archaeology even 120 meters below sea level it's it's difficult yeah and we 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 still haven't got to grips with what's on the ground either i mean i've been not really following but i've been sort of loosely following these sort of lidar surveys in south america and you just keep cropping up these ginormous cities and settled settlements that have been sort of swallowed up by the rainforest and, and no one knew no one knew anything about them Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, they're, they're turning up all the time now. Um, I believe even in Africa now, they're, they're starting to find a number of of, of old settlements um, or potentially old settlements in, in the Congo. Um, mm-hmm. There's been a, a number of, of satellite images that suggest that there's there's organised patterns that could indicate that there, there was agriculture going on in parts of Africa before we thought it was actually happening. Yeah. Um, now... Just going to your YouTube channel. I think have you got five videos up now? I literally five minutes before this show started, I uploaded number six. Oh right. Yeah. So what's what's the sort of latest development then? What's going on in the last video? So in the latest video, um, well, there's been a couple of people that have contacted me on the Graham Hancock message board. So if you go to Graham Hancock's website, he's got a forum where anyone can just uh, use an email address to set up a, um, an account and. You can have discussions on there, and there's some absolutely fantastic people on there with far more knowledge than me on, on actual ancient culture and um, ancient history. And there, there have been two people in particular who have contacted me. Uh, one of them is the author, Gary Osborne, and um, he's pointed a couple of things out to me that, uh, firstly, that if if you look at the Sphinx or if you, if you look from the perspective of the Sphinx during the summer solstice, at sunset, it points in the direction of the Azores. So, <laughs> what, I've, so what I've what I've actually done in this latest video, it's, it's worth a watch. Um, it's it's there, there's some interesting coincidences. I I went to a website called suncalc.org. So I'm trying. I was trying to work out the exact angle that the sun sets um, on the on the Giza Plateau from from the perspective of the the head of the Sphinx, right. and. 
it's a bit more difficult than you think because the sun doesn't set at um, at a level horizon. The Sphinx is situated downhill from from the um, from the horizon. So I, I worked out it's about 0.86 degrees below the horizon is the head of the Sphinx, and that gives you a bearing um, that you can create a, a a great circle arc with. And what I mean by a great circle is if if you were to draw the shortest route between any two points on a sphere, um, that's a great circle. So it's, it's just like if you're walking in a straight line in real life, that's a great circle. Whereas uh, if you were to follow a latitude line, um, mm. in, apart from the equator, if you followed any other line of latitude, you're not actually walking in a straight line to get there. So the, the great circle is the shortest route. So if, if you use the sun from the head of the Sphinx, to, uh, and you follow that bearing to to give you a um, or, or the initial bearing to give you a great circle, that takes you right into my location for Atlantis, um, which is a, a very strange coincidence. So, um, <laughs> there's a lot of these, isn't there? And, it, yeah. and you look, you look at the distance, and it's um, exactly five thousand five hundred and fifty six point six kilometers and why that's significant is because that's exactly thirty thousand stadia it's not thirty thousand and one it's not twenty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine it's exactly thirty thousand what yes yeah it's it's, it's worth worth watching the video i'm not doing it justice by talking about it um so this this was pointed out to me well the the actual bearing was or or the concept of finding this bearing was was pointed out to me by gary osborne and he he almost uh, he, he also made a note to me about how um the furthest structure from the head of the sphinx on the Giza Plateau is is the westernmost um, Queen's Pyramid. So that's um, the smaller of the three great pyramids. There's there's three smaller pyramids located south of those, and the furthest one from the Sphinx is exactly 1,080 meters. And it turns uh, out that sorry, go on. Well, basically, it, it turns out that Gobekli Tepe, so um, could be related to the Giza Plateau because Gobekli Tepe. Is exactly one thousand times that distance. It's one thousand eighty kilometers, and I've, I've taken that research a bit further in my video. And if you draw a line from the head of the Sphinx to the Great Pyramid, it perfectly reflects. You get a line that reflects the two the two vectors that you get from the Sphinx to this um, pyramid that's one thousand and eighty meters away, and you reflect that vector based on that new line we've drawn between the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx, that, that reflection takes you up to Gobekli Tepe at exactly a 1,000 um, times the distance, 1,080 kilometres. And then I've, I've gone a step further than that. Now, I've actually um, I've projected the latitude of the Sphinx out into the Atlantic Ocean, and I've projected the latitude of Gobekli Tepe out into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and it takes you to... Um, an island that would have been there at the start of the Holocene. So Gobekli Tepe is the same is the same um, latitude um, of an island which is now called the Dolabarata Reef. It's it would have been the very easternmost island of the Azores archipelago. And then, if you do the same thing with the Sphinx, if you project the latitude of the Sphinx out into the Atlantic Ocean, oh. it takes you to the Great Meteor Sea Bank and. Uh, Part of that, the westernmost part of that, likely could have been above sea level um, at the very start of the Holocene. And you can draw a line between those two places um, 
and this is where this other chap comes in now. This this chap called um, he's a French retired engineer called Michel um, de Maria, and he he's told me about a book he's reading, um, and it suggests that Stone Age peoples probably weren't actually taking angular measurements. They were they were just drawing right angle triangles of different lengths. So that the most famous one is the three four five triangle because the hypotenuse is is as an integer basically, so it's really easy to calculate. And we, we get this triangle, which is if, if we project a 90-degree line out of the Dola Barata Reef, it takes you to the westernmost, um, the westernmost island of the Azores, which is Flores Island. And you can draw a triangle between, you can close that triangle between Flores and the Great Meteor Seamount, and that's exactly 1,080 kilometers, the same distance as the Gobekli Tepe distance. Wow. But more more importantly, you can project from Flores Island, if you now follow the if you look at the winter solstice sunrise, that that projection, that that um that great circle arc crosses over the arc the great circle arc that comes from the Sphinx crosses over that great circle arc precisely over the location um, I've suggested it is is Atlantis. So again another <laughs> an, another coincidence. Um or, or maybe not a coincidence. Holy and, shit. But the, the distance, so you, you know how I said that it's precisely 30,000 stadia to the Sphinx from my proposed location? Yeah. Or to this, to, to the, um, to the Flores Island where it overlooks, um, overlooks towards Atlantis. That's exactly 1,000 stadia. It's not like 1,001 or 999 again. It's, it's a very, very strange coincidence and it possibly, you know, they, they've chosen to place Gobekli Tepe and place the Sphinx where it is um, to, to point the way back, is what I'm suggesting. Wow. I, I, I know it sounds absolutely insane, but it, uh, it, well, it's, more, it's, it's more tangible if you watch the video. Uh, no, I think there's a there's a lot of things like this that kind of you know so-called coincidences, sacred, yeah, sacred geometry. geometry, and things like that, isn't it associated with the the pyramids and all kinds of ancient civilizations, really? Yeah, and it and points towards that kind of progenitor civilization, I suppose. You know, you mentioned always uh, one. I got really excited when you mentioned ten eighty because that's a sacred number. That's right. That's yeah, why we so have 1080p televisions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the sacred, the sacred screen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in meters now. Meters is not an ancient unit of measurement, is it? I think. I think it. It could well be. Or could it be? Oh. There's, there's some evidence to suggest that the Egyptians were using the the meter, and I think that there's two pieces of of evidence. One of the or supposed pyramidians that was likely to be on top of the pyramids was supposed to be exactly one meter high but the other the other strange thing is that the the royal cubit is precisely um half a meter it's it's something um i think it's pi divided by six or something like that and it gives you 0.5335 meters or something so there's a pi meter relationship but there are it certainly looks like there are precise meter measurements found in in Egypt, but I guess it's a bit like us. Sometimes we use metric, sometimes we use imperial, and I'd imagine other cultures would probably be the same. You've got to use imperial. Man <laughs> man is the measure of all things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah, the cubits. So as far as I understand, the cubit is the elbow to the fingertip. 
or four, is it four or five palms? Hang on. One, two, three, four. Maybe it's six. No, it's six palms, isn't it? And then the royal cubit has an extra palm, so it'd be seven palms, I think. Yes, I'm I, talking I, smack. I don't know. I, 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 it, it sounds about right. I, I, yeah. I tend to remember numbers better than palms, to be honest. So. <laughs> wow. I'll, I'll try that. Next time I do a, a drawing for one of my clients, I'll, I'll do things in, in palms and roll cubits <laughs> and, and see uh, see how long it takes for them to get back to me. <laughs> it's a very important message, though, because all these ancient civilizations, they used, us, they used our bodies as a reference point for all the measurements. That's why we have a foot is the length of a foot. So yeah. a, a mile is a thousand mil, a thousand paces. Mm. And it suggests... It's what I love about it is it suggests a relationship between us and even the celestial because we know that there are relations and ratios at work with celestial mechanics, the earth and the moon and the sun and whatnot. Yeah, I can't remember the exact rules, but planets can only be in, in certain places. So you, you get certain, it's a bit like harmonics, I guess, isn't it? Um, yeah. if, if, if you get a, a planet in the wrong orbit, it, the, the, um, another planet will destabilize it. But you, you could argue, does, does this fractal system scale down to smaller levels as well? Yeah, people think, it, oh, it's such an amazing coincidence that the moon is just the right diameter to create a lunar eclipse. And, the, you know, the relationship between the sun, the earth and moon, it's just mm. a complete fluke that we happen to be here, the only sentient beings in the universe, and we happen to live on a planet where we have these relationships that create solar and lunar eclipses. And, like, come on, have a think. Yeah. There's something going on there. There seems to be... <laughs> Endless an, an, an endless stream of coincidences that just that happen to put everything just in our favour. Yeah, and you know it helps when you when you you're born on top of the uh, what's it the aquifer, the uh, yes. yeah Titanic plate. That was something on one of your other videos, I think. What was that one where you drew the line across the globe between the four the four pillars? That was it. So that was basically I was basically trying to um, link. Um, other stories that might relate back to Atlantis to other geological locations. So it's, it's quite strange. Um, you can you can find these volcanic um, hotspots exactly ninety degrees around this great circle that goes around the world. I think the one there's there's obviously the Azores hotspot, and then the other one I picked out was Easter Island. Everyone knows where that is. That's that's ninety degrees around the world circumference. And then there was a place, there was a hot spot in South Australia that just, it seems to be completely out of place. It's, it, it's, it, there's nothing else around it. It's just a strange volcano. I can't remember the name of that one. Um, but there's this Aboriginal stories uh, with regards to its creation. And uh, you follow that same line round and, and another 90 degrees around the world, you get a place uh, called Mount Gurnar, which is in India. And it's, it's, um, it's a sacred place for both Jains and Hindus. And uh, it's just it kind of makes me wonder: do, do, are these do these hotspots have some kind of relation to the Earth's magnetic field? Um, because a magnetic field isn't always a, a perfect toroid. There's, there's other things that can interfere with that. So you get lines of flux that are just slightly more deviant from from the majority of the flux lines. I mean, we have we have three North Poles um, that we can look at. For example, we've got the, the geographic North Pole, which has nothing to do with magnetism. It's just where the Earth spins. And then we have 
another North Pole, which is where your compass points to, which is the, the like the the average point of them. And then there's there's another I can't remember the exact terminology for it. But there's there's a third there's a third North Pole, which is also a magnetic magnetic North Pole. Um, but it's, that's the that's the strongest of of the poles, I believe. But then the one your compass points to is just the average of the poles. <laughs> and just going back to the four hotspots. Easter Island, India. Are they fairly equidistant from each other? Yeah, they seem to be equally spaced on this. Um, if, if, if you draw, if you draw like the the Earth's circumference, which is about forty thousand kilometers, if you draw a great circle line, a forty thousand kilometer great circle line from um, where I'm saying Atlantis is through Easter Island, and you carry that line on, it takes you to this volcano in Australia, and then it takes you to, to Mount Gurnar in India, and they're all separated by about 10,000 kilometres or 90 degrees. It's, it's not a perfect circle, but it's about as close as you're going to get. That's amazing. And so if you think, if you if you sort of try and picture in your head, if you could sort of, if you had X-ray vision and you could see through the oceans and the crust, that you'd have almost like four spokes coming up yeah or at some point i think some of these places are no longer no longer active but why why do these why were these regions hot spots at 90 degrees away from each other um i, I do have a background in in magnetics and i know that there's 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 things that influence lines of flux so it could be the type of rock so most most rock the, the magnetic permeability of a lot of sort of inert rocks isn't much different than free air, but if you've got a metallic content in the rock, it, it can change the magnetic permeability, so it can channel lines of magnetic flux. It could just literally be a geological um, phenomenon that's it's just not fully fully understood as as you know as of right now. Well, Matt, I'm, 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 my mind's blown. Yeah, I've enjoyed tonight. Yeah, <laughs> it's really fascinating. Uh, really interesting research. Are you obsessed? Are you ver- are you on the verge of an obsession here? Do we need to you, do we need to worry you, about an intervention? You'd have to ask my girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to let you talk to her. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's yes. my answer. I say yes. Yeah. No, I love it, and uh, I can't wait to check out the next video. Uh, mm. I mean, what what are you, what are you planning with the channel? Are you just gonna? keep going as far, as far as you keep finding things or are you looking to sort of do more collaborating and try and find more evidence what are you sort of planning on the you know because obviously you know you you're a busy guy you've got a company to run full time you're doing this on the side i mean have you thought that far ahead um as, as far as the atlantis videos are concerned like there's, there's one i released five minutes before this podcast started so yeah. um that's video number six i've got a seventh one i'm making that's regarding the Edfu texts, but also other um, ancient stories that seem to very strongly resemble the Edfu texts. And then after that, that's, that's the majority of my Atlantis research done, to be honest. I'll, I'll probably do small update videos. Um, I'll probably do a very small one, one or two minute long video regarding this LL SVP situation regarding the geology. So I'd like to move on to, to other things. Maybe. Um, so not so not not just not not just not just Atlantis. Yeah. Um but other other potential um ancient mysteries worth obsessing over. Brilliant. Well, sounds great. Thanks for coming, Matt. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. And we'll uh, we'll put yeah. the links, obviously all the links in the descriptions for your for your channel and um you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, um, Twitter, YouTube, Odyssey, or LBRY. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can find me in all of those places. If if you search for if you just search for the word apocalypse on on Odyssey, I think I'm the top search on there now. So cool. Um, that's the easiest way to find me. Brilliant. Well, it's been great, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, watching the the latest videos. And I uh, hope everyone listening can check them out as well. Um, stay on the line for us one minute while we play ourselves out, and we'll yeah. catch you on the flip side. Let's see you, Matt. Cheers. Hey. Right then, we're uh, back. Yeah. The dwarf, the mother of madness. Oh, yeah. nearly. Bit sloppy that on the on the mix there. Yeah, four cans in. Yeah, that was our chat with Matt from the Apocalypse YouTube yeah, channel. Matt. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Like I was saying, uh, um, I thought he was very good because he said it was his first podcast. So, um, you know, came across very well, very knowledgeable about his subject, which is obviously going to happen if you put that much effort into it. You can tell if you watch his videos that there's a hell of a lot of work has to go into them, research. Yeah, I think he said that he started, I think he said he'd been interested in this kind of area for, I think, 16 years, but... um, he said he'd been researching this thing for two years. Yeah. And that's where his videos have come from, basically. Yeah, it's. Uh, I love the subject matter. It's uh, It's just, well, we're all trying to sort of find out the story, aren't we? Where do we come from? Yeah. How... Just trying to make sense of the world, man. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and it's quite romantic, isn't it? You know, the story of Atlantis and, and lost civilizations and whatnot. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Check out the links. I'll put the I'll put the links in the show notes. So uh, scroll down, you can find his channel, and yeah. uh, the the video that's just been released tonight sounds uh, pretty mind blowing. Yeah, it does do with all these the sacred geometry and stuff going on in it. Ratio. Yeah, it's all about ratio, man. It is maybe that's why they had concentric rings on Atlantis. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay, should we do some house courting? Why not? Housekeeping. 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 This is a value for value podcast. If you found this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There's yeah. lots of easy, great ways to do this. Um, subscribe. <laughs> subscribe to the Odyssey channel. Odyssey channel, YouTube. Follow us on um, social media, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, if you can get in contact with us, we're very approachable. We don't bite. Yeah. Um, send us an email. The Armist Inquisition at gmail.com is the email address. That's right, yeah. Um, send us artwork. Oh, the person who says the size of the artwork's not here this week, though. <laughs> 1,400 square pixels. 
between 1400 and I think 3000 square pixels is acceptable. If you wanted your artwork to be the artwork for an episode, mm-hmm. send it. Chuck it our way and we shall do that. Um, send us uh, news articles. Yeah. Uh, it- t- Timestamp things for us. There's lots of really... Once you abandon the mainstream nonsense that's piped into your fucking house every day, the Netflix and the BBC and the Crown and all this garbage that fills your head, there is so much other great stuff out there. Case in like point, our garbage. guest our guest tonight. Yeah. You might actually learn something and be interested, interested in something. I just found a new way of pronouncing interested. 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 <laughs> You know, um, I don't know where I was going with that. If you find something interesting, send us the link. Yeah. And, you know, if it's like a long interview, you think that's something that needs amplifying, mm-hmm. timestamp it, and we, we, we will clip that out. That's how you become a producer, because you help, help us produce the content. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the major ways of doing it. Um, telling people word of mouth if you think you've you know know someone who's interested in the lost city of Atlantis hello <laughs> send them uh, send them a link to this episode they might enjoy it exactly um jingle requests oh, five pound no more this week no but it's a five pound minimum fee if you yeah. have a, an idea for a jingle I don't know what you might want um it helps when you uh, don't have the fader turned down. I'm literally a... Chest feeding. Raisins and salt... Fuck that one on. Yeah. <laughs> that was awful. Let's try this one. I'm literally a... Happy birthday, huge anus. No, that one doesn't work either, does it? No. All right, let's try... Uh... I'm literally a... Feces. That's a bit better. Yeah. Anyway, there's over a hundred... Shall I, just, shall I just mash the keypad and see what comes out without even looking? Go ahead. People are suffering. People are suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else can you do? The loot buy chest. Some, yeah, Go, to the, merch. Go to the Armist Inquisition loot chest. The link is in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Pick up a... Because uh, I'm literally a communist. Hoodie or a... Current grape. T-shirt. Yeah. Or just a decorative mug. A decorative? Are they not functional mugs as well? Probably. But probably too they're probably too nice to use, aren't they? Is it like the the, the China? Yeah. You only get it out what Christmas Day? Never. Never. Never? Oh it's just Never. it's in a glass fronted display cabinet, is it, it? Exactly, yeah. Oh my god. Did your mum and dad used to have display cabinets? She still has one, and right. it has all 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 kinds of trinkets in it. Yeah, awful ornaments. I don't. Th- is that something that's died with that generation? Is there a yeah mo- ornaments? Well, display cabinet. Yes, display cabinets they probably have, haven't they? They probably probably people put different things in them now. I suppose. Um, Crack. I'm, yeah. Right. Mum has a lovely <laughs> ceramic family of polar bears on her fireplace. 
I often look at it and think that's nice. But when um, she finally leaves this realm, I do... Where's inherit... she going? As God? <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> um, she... I am going to be bequeathed a porcelain tiger. Wow. Yeah. What, one-to-one scale? Uh, I wish. It's probably just over a foot long, I would say. Wow. Yeah, I know. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to put it on this sideboard here. I think it'll really pop <laughs> on there. Where did they get it from? I don't know. I think they ha- I think they got it in the 60s, maybe when they got married or something. That's a hell of a wedding present. I know, yeah. I've got dun, a foot-long ceramic dun, tiger. Dun, dun. <laughs> it's a bit too early for that. 60s. Yes. Right. So, uh, any other way to... Better, be- what? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just going to say someone better toss us a coin, didn't they? Oh, my God. Toss a coin to your witcher, Old Valley of Plenty. How dare you? Old Valley of Plenty. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I drink and I know things. I got hairy cunts. Because I'm literally a... Oh. Yeah, you Ooh. can donate. Um, go to the armsignmusician.com. You'll find a pay bu- pal button there. And you can give us a one-off donation or sign up for a monthly, recurring, sustaining donation. Yeah. Whatever you think it's worth, this entertainment, this information, this infotainment that you get every week. Maybe it's worth a coffee. All right, well, you know, if you have a coffee a week, send us a tenner a month. <laughs> Whatever, I don't know. Is that what it costs? £2.50? Probably more. Yeah. I would imagine for a big one. The point is, it's whatever you think it's worth. And um, if you are not in a p- position to donate monetarily, don't worry. No, that's fine. Do the other things. Yeah. S- spread the word. Um, you know, sign up to the Odyssey. Throw us some crypto. That's a way of, <laughs> you know, supporting us financially without it even costing you a penny. Exactly. Okay. Right. Oh, I should, um, you know, last week I, um, I sent an end of show mix to Adam from No Agenda. Yeah, friends of the show. No agenda. <laughs> I'm lost. Uh, I've got a little clip here. This is from uh, Sunday. Oh, did he mention one? That's where the money is. Coming up next on noagendastream.com, we have Hawk Story. Um, also, we have that TikTok girl for kids by request for the end of show mixes along with uh, Amish Phil with a little ditty. And Tom Starkweather always brings us the historical lesson. Now includes theremin. We love that, Tom. So please uh, remember. There you go. Yeah. Friends of the show. Of our show now. So, um, when's he coming on? He doesn't do very rarely. Does guest guest appearance on podcasts, and he certainly won't come on ours. How do you know? Just say I sent you that kick-ass. Um, I had a tiger spoof. Yeah. All right. I'll try. I know what the answer will be. <laughs> Who? No. <laughs> Excuse me. You, you realise sure. I am the podfather. So. Yeah. No, I won't even bother wasting his time by sending him an email. 
just keep bombarding him with high quality um, jingles then. Like, well, where's this inspiration coming from? I don't know. We need our listeners to provide the inspo. Yeah. Again. Uh, right. Shall we thank the producers for episode 186? Yeah. I think it's time, isn't it? It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. It's another short list. Ooh, Slicko83, Nomi Noznodge, Anonymous, and everyone who bought merch this week. Thank you. You're so amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their chest feeding love. And literally. The best mate. I'm a Marxist. The dwarf, the current, the grape, the homophobe, the winds, the misogynist, the uh, tosilizu mab, the fucking vegan, the route to liberty, Can you? the line dog face pony soldier, the asna, the corrupt cunt, the devil in the rock and a half place, the number 11, the special deposit, the big stud, the blind man, the communist on the horizon, the cripple and the mother of the bickering from like a judgment day and terminating. Mode like. <laughs> yes! I don't get it, never will. Yep, thanks. Thanks for your support for another week. Keep it coming. We need all the help we can get, don't we? Mm. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Right, let's move on. COVID-19 news. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode like... It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Because we're getting bored, we want to have fun. I can't save you if you're wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. What did you do with Big Chungus? That is the question. COVID news. I didn't really uh, want to do this. I'm doing, I didn't, I did get a clip and then I deleted it. I didn't want to play it, but have you heard about the uh, Lisa Shaw, the uh, BBC radio presenter? No. Oh. Oh, fuck. Well, unfortunately, she died this week. All right. Okay. Um, and the family's saying it was the AZ. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Developed headaches a week after the AZ. Uh, brain hemorrhage. Mm. 44 years old with a family. Um, yeah. Has that actually been reported then? I've not heard that. Well, you won't hear it on the news. Well, you won't hear it on the TV news. Um, the, um, local Northeast news, like local BBC news, um, did a quick report of it. It's been on the news online. Mm. Sad. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I've got a little stat for you here. Mm -hmm. In the week ending... 27th of May, so that's the latest that we have numbers for. There were 56 COVID deaths, so deaths within, within 28 days of a positive PCR. Mm. And there were 33 deaths reported to the yellow card system. From the vaccine? 
after vaccinations. Potentially, yeah. yeah. Potentially. It's catching up, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, I just thought I would mention it because I don't know if everyone's heard about that. It was pretty sad. I don't want to dwell on it. No, yeah. Um, massive story this week. William Shakespeare's dead. <laughs> William Shakespeare is trending on the internet for his death. Not the playwright, he's been long dead, but the first man in the world to be vaccinated, who incidentally shares the very famous name. William Shakespeare, the first man to get publicly vaccinated for COVID-19, has died. However, it is not due to the vaccination or COVID-19 at all, as some are falsely representing. Shakespeare died of an unrelated illness last Thursday, the BBC reported. He was 81 years old. It was a stroke. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. When did he have his second vaccine now? Last week? Right. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. That's I mean, taken down. shouldn't he be immortal once he's had the vaccine? <laughs> That's the issue, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. What's going on? I thought you you live forever. You're immune from the Grim Reaper once you'd had your, your jab. No. No, I guess not. Have you heard about this, um, the NHS... Uh, divvying up everyone's data. I I saw something, a headline on the Guardian today mm-hmm. about them GPs, uh, like somebody that represents GPs are raising. If we're talking about the same thing, uh, it's NHS Digital basically, and then they're going to be able to sell it on to third parties or something. Oh, sorry, get allow third parties to have access to it anonymized. Uh, like, you've got till the 23rd of June. To opt out, is it? Yeah. Right. I think you have to write to your GP. Oh, God. It, well, yeah, they're not going to make it easy. This is valuable. Yeah. It's all your data, all your health data. Mm. You're not just going to be able to just click tick a box on the on the internet. <laughs> it wasn't just when I was reading about it, it wasn't just health data. It was like um, criminal convictions, uh, spent com- criminal convictions. Yeah, all that stuff that's on the NHS app that Julie Hartley Brew were talking about last week. Uh, I don't have it. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I've got a little. Yeah, it's it's not been publicised. That's what they've been criticised for. They just tucked it away on this web.gov website somewhere. They haven't publicised well, this at all. Well, no, they, yeah, yeah, sorry. <coughs> yeah, that's what I read. Hancock, there was a quote from Hancock um, sort of saying that all this stuff's going to you know, get sold, whatever, and that was it. Oh, no, I've got a quote here from the, uh, the web page in question. Go on. We are not going to sell your data. <laughs> NHS Digital does not sell data. It does, however, charge those who want to access its data for the cost of making the data available to them. Oh, for God's sake. So, um, it'll be scientific stuff, corporations. Yeah. All the rest of it. So, yeah, you've got, uh, what have you got? Three, three and a bit weeks. If you so want to, if you want to opt out. What's the, uh, advantages to me? Of them having my data. Why should they be allowed to do that? And me, surely it should be an opt-in rather than an opt-out. 
Um, you do realize you are a peon. <laughs> you're a, you're a number on a database. <laughs> I don't think your feelings or concerns have been taken into account in this transaction. Yeah, I know, but surely, like, even with just like GDPR and all the rest of it. Oh, that's that, that's all gone out the window since April last year. Has it? Why? They just oh, because... fucking ignored it because of all the COVID, you know, emergency yeah. legislation. Whoa, don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm. No, uh, and what, if you fail to opt out, mm. you can opt out after June the 23rd, mm. but it'll be only be data that's added after then, which will be opt out, which will be not on the database. So your entire history will be there forever if you don't opt out before June the 23rd. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'll leave, it, I'll leave it in your capable hands to make an, a decision whether you want to be involved or not. Yeah. It's one of those things I, I, I probably get a little bit angry about and then I forget. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, you know, there's I'm a new box set on, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> there's, not much, there's not much on at the moment, actually. That's what I've heard, yeah, because um, she started watching NCIS. Oh, no. Yeah, no, yeah. She loves to watch Scraping the Barrel, your missus, doesn't she? Oh. She probably watches now on Facebook. The trashier, the better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that was the uh, the NHS data mining operation exposed. <laughs> what about, um, oh, the lab leak? The lab leak story is back, uh, back in the game. I've heard something about, did you put this in our group? About three people, some people being ill or something? Three Wuhan lab scientists Mm. apparently being treated in hospital for flu-like symptoms in November 2019. Yeah. According to the US Security Services, uh, Biden, (laughs) Biden has come out. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. And he's, he's, he wants to redouble the efforts to get to the bottom. Oh. Fauci's come un, unstuck. I mean, we I saw clips of him t- a week or two ago being questioned in the Senate by Rand Paul saying, the NIH has nothing to do with the Wuhan lab. We don't do gain-of-function research, blah de blah Everyone who's been following this subject knows that he's lying out of his fucking arsehole. Or it's being selective with the truth because we all knew that the NIH was funding the Wuhan lab through an intermediary called EcoHealth Alliance run by Peter Dozak, who happened to be the lead scientist who went over with the WHO to investigate the origins of the coronavirus. All this nonsense. Anyway, so he's been rolling back this week. and He came out and said that he wasn't convinced it was naturally occurring. So obviously he can see the writing on the wall. Um, one thing that really that I found quite amusing was um, Facebook's reaction to the news of the Wuhan lab leak. Got a little clip here from Deutsche Welle. <laughs> Did W? Well, a new investigation ordered by the Biden administration has prompted a change in Facebook's policy. In February, the social media company started removing posts that promoted the lab origin theory, and now it has reversed that decision, so DW's Amian Asif can tell us more. So talk us through, then, uh, the changes uh, to Facebook's policy on COVID-19. Yeah, so six months ago, 
you would have your pulse removed. And if you continue to pulse that you thought that the virus was man-made or that it leaked from a lab, you'd have your account banned. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? For kind of um, this publisher platform debate thing, is it? What is it? Uh, fact check falls. We've debunked, <laughs> we've debunked that. Bye-bye. <laughs> Off our platform. Well, Turns out I mean, not. Sorry. Turns yeah, out they yeah. were wrong. Mm. Uh, the explanation and the anchor just uh, made me laugh with this comment. But anyway, moving on with DW. A lot of times those got conflated, and so you had journalists. This is about were- why why have they changed this policy now? Why mm. we didn't know because everyone's coming out and saying it's back on the table. Was taken down who said that this lab leak theory had some um, some weight to it. But then they updated their policy uh, on Wednesday, saying that they're no longer going to enforce this uh, man-made theory that this needs to be taken off uh, their website. Now, what's interesting is that when they said why they, are take, why they changed their policy, they said, we're continuing to work with health experts to keep pace with the evolving nature of the pandemic. Now, that's not admitting that they were wrong. It's just saying that things change and so does our policy, which is also like saying, well, this thing that we said was debunked is not actually debunked, which in that case would merit an apology, I feel. Okay, so conspiracy theorists around the world can get busy. Um- <laughs> get Just so dismissive, isn't it? Yeah. Biden, the President of the United States, has asked for a redoubling of efforts into the investigation. Anthony Fauci's came out and said, I'm not convinced that this is man-made. Yet DW Anchor still saying, oh, conspiracy theories get busy. Mm. They can't accept it. That they've been talking bullshit for the last year. Mm. Because they've all been saying this is a conspiracy theory. It's nonsense. Mm-hmm. And you know why? Why? I don't know. Because Trump said it. Oh, yes. Yeah, good point. Orange man can't be right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. But the thing is, is he would have been, I suppose, have the same intelligence that Biden's getting now, I guess, then. Yeah, but he can't be right. Well, no, I know he It doesn't is. matter what the truth is. And we can't admit he was right. What are we going to do? If he was right about this, he might be right about something else. Yeah. Oh, no. Just uh, my worldview's been shattered. Mm-hmm. They just can't handle it. It's weird. Uh, anyway, going to back to Fauci, I've got a clip of his, his, his little rollback on the Wuhan flu origin story. And uh, there was a little slip of the tongue, a little truth wants to come out moment here. Cause uh, COVID-1 clearly originated in China, and we were fortunate to escape a major pandemic. So we really had to learn a lot more about the viruses that were there, about whether or not people were getting infected with bad viruses. So in a very minor collaboration as part of a subcontract of a grant, we had a collaboration with some Chinese com- uh, Chinese uh, scientists. And, and what he conflated that is that, therefore, we were involved in creating the virus, which is the most ridiculous... Ma- uh, not creating the virus. That's not what they said. It's gain-of-function research. Take the mm-hmm. existing virus and you try to make it yeah. more uh, successful in infecting humans. 
not creating the virus. No one's saying that. But yeah, majestic yeah. leap I've ever heard of. I just like the little. Uh, we had a collaboration with some Chinese com- uh, Chinese uh, scientists. <laughs> I can't believe he's like eighty. Is he eighty? He's eighty, isn't he? It's a bit he's, wild. He's been around since the AIDS crisis. Yeah, in, so in this forty years, isn't it? Yeah. If we, that's just yeah, it's good, good. It's good work if you can get it, isn't it? Fauci, but it does it? Looks all right for eighty, doesn't he? It's all He's that 80. adrenochrome is snorting. Adrenochrome, like full head of hair. Look at him. Yeah, I, I look at him regularly. You're thinking maybe, maybe has some lizard DNA, salamander DNA in him. Possibly. <laughs> I thought it was like you know, like sixties, <coughs> maybe, but eighty. Yeah, amazing. Can you imagine working until you're eighty? It must be a full-on job. Do you not think? Why do you think he does it? For the money. I don't know. Maybe once you, maybe once you're in that deep, there isn't a way out. You just have to die. You have to die in office at post. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I um uh, I got um a clip. Um, are, are you familiar with Max Egan? I've heard the name. I think oh. he's Australian, and he was mm. talking at uh, at one of the recent protests. I don't know if it's from today, right. but he was talking about um, you know, masks and stuff. And okay. I just took a little clip, which I found interesting. People might not be aware of. Mask mandates. Anybody who's claiming the masks are good for you, show me proof of claim. Ask for proof of claim with all this stuff. Don't just say I'm exempt. So, no, I'm not wearing it. I'm not wearing it because I won't perform an act of self harm. Are you going to say that you're now going to perform an act of harm against me because I won't perform an act of self harm? Who the fuck are you? You know? And if anybody's claiming that these masks protect me from anything, go read the label on the box for God's sake. And find me one proof of claim that they do anything but cause harm, because that's what they do. You know, when the um, SARS pandemic came out in 2003, there were people who were claiming masks would protect you from SARS. And the government was fining those people $22,000 for making that claim. Any business that was cashing in on selling masks was being fined $110,000, because it said in the Sun Herald newspaper, they're only safe for 20 minutes. Then you start breathing your own bacterial load into your body. What's changed in the last 17 years? The only thing that's changed is the gag orders have been put on the media and the fact that our media is now the unofficial spokesperson for the pedophiles masquerading as politicians who are masquerading as government in this country. So uh, that claim in the middle about um, the government in Australia fining companies um, about the claims of the mass, and I looked it up. And it's there, Sydney Herald, 2003. Companies getting fined $22,000 for saying that masks will protect you against SARS. That's wild, isn't it, to think that it's kind of completely flipped. I was looking at some other scientific papers in the fallout from SARS, talking about masks and how useful they are. Not from a medical point of view. From a... Psychological point of view. Mm. Well, that's true, isn't it? I think um, when I sent you, I, d- I didn't timestamp anything, 
But when I was, I was listening to a Jordan Peterson podcast with Stephen Fry, which was interesting in general, but um, he was kind of talking about a point as to why he was asking Jordan, Stephen Fry was asking Jordan Peterson why behaviorism had gone out of favor. Um, and the point he was making, Stephen Fry, was that, you know, do people talk about the immunologists and epidemiologists or whatever scientists on sage, but there's behaviorists on there as well. And, you know, yeah, advising, um, how to make people follow instructions basically and do what the government says. Yeah. One of the, I can't remember her name. One of the head ones who's on spy V and she's one of the, uh, talking heads you often see on Newsnight and stuff. Right. And uh, self-proclaimed Marxist. <laughs> really? Member of the Communist Party. You can look at her Wikipedia. I'll have to find her name. She's all over the media. Writing in The Guardian on Newsnight. There's a lot of Marxists in The Guardian, though, isn't there? In the government? In The Guardian, I said. No, but she's in the government. I know. It's, it's quite strange, isn't it, that a communist would be... Uh, yeah, involved in the government at all. Even from her own, well, unless she's, you know, she's a sleeper agent. In an advisory capacity. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's... it's uh, From the, all the evidence I've seen, uh, medically, the mass are a complete waste of time. They may have some marginal benefits in some settings. Mm-hmm. Um, but on practically statistically significant, it's a it's a psychological tool, and there are studies going back to two thousand and three saying that we can learn lessons in how they used masks in Asia to um, program people basically to behave. It's that are worth looking at, yeah. Because, like they were saying, they were the argument. There was no argument that they actually pre- prevented infection. There was no evidence. And no. once you've been breathing on the thing for 20 minutes and it gets wet, mm. it's, it's next to useless anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it's weird. It is. It's a huge psychological tool that's at play. That's mm. why it'll be the last thing to go. <laughs> it'll oh, be the, yeah. last, uh, the last measure to go. I think we're looking at local lockdowns, aren't we? Again. I don't know. Do you I not think know. it'll happen? I think the probability is it will happen, but mm. um, do you know? I had a thought when I was watching Dominic Cummings this week. Just one. Yeah, just one. Like mm-hmm. you see, I'm trying to look at this objectively, and I'm thinking about the government, and they often come out, Boris Johnson and Hancock, Mancock, and all the rest of it, saying we don't want to keep these restrictions in place (laughs) a moment longer than is necessary. Uh And for them in power, I thought there is actually one pretty good reason why they wouldn't want this to end. And that is, is that the public inquiry can't happen till it's over. Yeah. So you could see that this is going to go on until Matt Hancock Boris Johnson, 
everybody dies. I don't know. I don't know. But they don't think that far ahead. They're just trying to survive for another week. Yeah, I suppose. And then maybe a month. And then maybe get to the next election at best. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, not sleaze, is there, but is it sleaze? You know, it's, uh, in, incompetence being thrown around, isn't there? I suppose accusations of incompetence. Well, there certainly has been this week, hasn't there, with uh, Dominic Cummings's uh, evidence given to select committee this week. I don't know <laughs> if you caught any of it. I've tried to read. I mean, I just can't get over, how, <coughs> you know, this... Oh, the switcheroo, isn't it, from he him being, you know, the most untrusted man in the country, you know, and driving to wherever he, that castle or whatever. Barnard Castle. Then, yeah, and then he's, I wouldn't say he's become the darling of the left, <laughs> but, um, you know, his evidence is now being used, isn't it, to um, attack the government, basically. Yeah. I've got a few highlights, if you'd like to hear them. Good, yeah. I'd like to, yeah. A smoking ruin. We didn't have, that was uh, Department of Health. He described Department of Health as a smoking ruin last time, I think, he was in select committee. Right. It was seven hours long, I think. Oh, he's just got an axe to grind, hasn't he? So, yeah. Uh, Clip one. A lot of things, one of the huge problems we had throughout was things leaking and causing chaos in the media. Leaking from Cobra. Leaking from Cobra. Leaking from... Do you remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was controversy because Bojo wouldn't go to the Cobra meeting? No, maybe not. It it was a story at the time. It was getting getting abused by The Guardian and Sky News because he wouldn't go to the Cobra meeting. Practically everything. Um, and so when I would have sensitive conversations that I didn't want to see appear in the, in the media, I did not have those conversations in Cobra. I had those so, conversations so just, just put a pause on that. So you were saying that the meeting, the most secure meeting in Whitehall, literally named after a room, the Cabinet Office briefing room, where you've got to leave your phone outside, it's, it's swept for, for bugs. That meeting was so insecure that you didn't feel that you could speak candidly at it. You said you were concerned about leaks. That's presumably the implication. Certainly. I mean, you can just look at the uh, you can just look at the record. I mean, co- the, the the meetings the meetings are of access, the excess committee, which was supposedly the secret. That's shocking. Well, no, because it's just MPs and members of the armed forces and all all the different services, isn't it? That goes to that. So, you know, an MP goes there, he's got a mate at whatever paper, he's still going to tell him what's going on, aren't they? So they keep out whatever sleaze about them. You know, you well, you just tell me what's going on in that Cobra meeting and, you know, we'll make sure this uh, sex tape never comes to light. These are supposed to be meetings at the highest level on matters mm. of national security. Yeah, I know. And we can't trust these people to talk to each other in a room without yeah. leaking stuff to the press for their own political needs. Yeah. This is where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the next one? Oh, let's uh, let's get Cummings' opinion on Bojo the Clown's thinking in February 2020. 
um, in, in February, the Prime Minister regarded this as um, just a, a scare story. He, he regarded, he d described it as the new swine flu. Did you tell him it wasn't? S certainly. But the view of various officials inside Number 10 was, um, if we have the Prime Minister chair in Cobra meetings and he just tells everyone, it's swine flu, don't worry about it, I'm going to get Chris Whitty to inject me live on TV with coronavirus so everyone realises it's nothing to be frightened of, that would be, that would not help actually serious planning. Okay, but you talk about... I wish he'd done that. I know, yeah, you know. We've got his hospitalisation over and done with it. <laughs> Do you think that's kosher, the hospitalisation? Do you think he nearly died? No. No? I just think, I think that he was, it didn't nearly, I mean, when you, it's overweight, isn't he? Yep. Um, I'm sure I read a story that he had had pneumonia as a child. Really? And that had scarred his lungs. I don't know how true that is. So, you know, there's two factors there that might sort of suggest... Comorbidities. Um, yeah, that it would would have been worse for him. He was, he's in his mid-50s, isn't he? Defeffel. I don't know. I don't know how, how old Defeffel is. <laughs> so, um, it's probably, you know, it increases your risk, doesn't it, anyway, for each year, each year older that you are. Um, for the severity. Mm. Um, so, you know, it potentially could have affected him worse. But you think because he was the prime minister, he would have, as soon as he showed any signs of breathlessness, he would have been, that's it, right, you're going to intensive care. You think the level of care afforded the prime minister would have been greater than uh, Joel Public? Not necessarily the level of care, but uh, the level of precaution. I don't know. I don't know if there is. What's the uh, treatment program for COVID-19? I don't know. I thought they just said, um, come back when you're struggling to breathe. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, you know, if he was a little bit breathless, <laughs> you know, like my eldest son woke up in the middle of the night and was going... <laughs> Yeah, the bird. <laughs> <laughs> um, like that. So, um, mm. then he would have just whipped him in hospital, wouldn't they? Or if you know, if he's uh, oxygen, what is it called? The oxygen saturation thing, a drop below like ninety-five or whatever, they would have said, "Right, you're going in." Yeah, I don't know. The Cummings has had it. He got it at the same time, I think. Yeah, they all got it because you know Hancock had it. Yeah, because they're all it was like um, shaking everybody's hands, wasn't he? And mm. the virus on and stuff. I thought that that had been debunked. Now the it's on it lives in in on surfaces. Oh, I don't know. Is it is, is it just sneezing then? I think it's just aerosolized. You're right. Okay. It's only sneezing if you've been vaccinated. Have you hear that this week? That the symptoms change once you've been vaccinated? No. No, it was in, I don't know if it was British Medical Journal or one of, one of the scientific uh, publications. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, once you've been vaccinated, the symptoms change. Oh. And right. sneezing is a big one. Right. So it's perfect for hay fever season then. Yeah. That works out well. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's the vaccine fighting back. Because like, 
a sneeze has so much more velocity than a cough, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I say, come on, get me out there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But that's Maybe. apparently that's a thing. That if you've been vaccinated, you get different symptoms than you know the great unwashed. Well, you would think that it, they they would be milder symptoms, wouldn't you? If you were vaccinated, <laughs> but God why they'd be different? <laughs> God knows. Well, they don't know, do they? It's an experiment. We'll figure it out in a couple of years. <laughs> oh my God! Let's get uh, Dominic Cummins' opinion of the cabinet office going into the crisis. <laughs> So I, uh, I sent a message to the Prime Minister at 7.48 that morning, um, uh, and forgive, my, forgive the language that, that, that um, this is expressed in, but I, suppose I might as well just say what I actually said. We've got big problems coming. The Cabinet Office is terrifyingly shit. No, the Cabinet Office is terrifyingly shit. No plans, totally behind the pace. We must announce today, not next week. If you feel ill with cold or flu, stay home. What did he say? The cabinet office is what? The cabinet office is terrifyingly shit. No. Terrifyingly shit. <laughs> Where is the cabinet office? Is that <sighs> the cabinet? It's like the, uh, the, it's the, like the, the head honchos. It's like the the highest echelons of the civil service, is it not? Cabinet office? The guys who execute Order 66. Oh, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't like... The civil servants, does he? No, he doesn't. Mm. I can't, I have no experience. I've listened to him before, before all this happened, talking about problems with Whitehall and the way mm. the system works and the lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it kind of rings true to me. Mm. I can see that happening. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, Surely we had plans for a pandemic like this, you would think, wouldn't you? At this point, the second most powerful official in the country, Helen McNamara, is the Deputy Cabinet Secretary. She walked into the office while we're looking at this whiteboard. She says, I've just been talking to the official, Mark Sweeney, who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote... I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. I've come through here to the... Tallamakamora said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely fucked. Sounds a mess, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I thought there were plans. You know, like we were all supposed to, purely people were supposed to stay at home and then everybody else was okay. It's before all this, before March the 23rd, this. Yeah, no, but I thought that that was the plan. No, I don't think there was a plan. All right. From what, from what it sounds like, from what he says anyway, there wasn't like a central plan. Mm. There was nothing there. And the technology seems to let them down. It's like... They had to give up doing meetings in Cobra because, like, they couldn't get the laptops to work. Like, nothing would go on the screen. It was just, you know, antiquated, useless. Mm. You just wonder where all the money goes, don't you? You know, do yeah. you, you know, you'd imagine that we'd have some sort of high-tech system 
in the heart of, of government. Some kind of holographic <laughs> minority report. Yeah. Well, uh, he laid into Mancock <laughs> in a big way. Gone. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I think that there was some brilliant... Mancock is the health secretary, by the way. Runs the Department of Health. Uh, like in much of the government system, there was many brilliant people at relatively junior and middle levels who were terribly let down by senior leadership. Um, I think that uh, uh, I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things, including lying to everybody in multiple occasions in meeting after meeting in the in the cabinet room and publicly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it seems to be well known, doesn't it, that he's useless? <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Fuck. Going is back he not to just sorry. a patsy. Is he not just somebody that's been put in that role, so he's just easily controllable in the same way that he got rid of Javid and put that other guy in there? Sunash. Yeah. Sunak. Uh, interestingly, uh, Sunak and Gove got out scot free. No criticism from Cummings. Mm. So there may be a play coming in the future. All right, yeah. Who knows? God, Michael Gove cannot be the Prime Minister, can he? I think... That awful, awful man. I might be wrong, but I think Gove was the first minister to hire Cummings when he was Department of Education. I might be wrong, but I think there might be something happening there. In the shadows. Yeah, probably. You know how we're talking about the minority report, some sophisticated Mm. data system in the heart of number 10. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's get Cummings' description of it. It, in all sorts of ways, it didn't exist. So the data system on um, on Monday, the sixteenth of March, was the following: it was me wheeling in that whiteboard that you've seen from the photo, and writing on Simon Stevens reading out from scraps of paper numbers from the ICUs, and I would write them down on the left hand side, and I would get my iPhone out and I would go times two, times two, times two, and then I would write another column and I would say, so if it's Doubling every five days, these are the numbers that we're going to be looking at. And everyone will look at the whiteboard and go, Jesus, could that, could that possibly be correct? There, there, there was no functioning data system. And that was connected with, there was no, um, there was no proper testing data. So you have it, just a whiteboard and an iPhone. That's all you need to navigate your way through <laughs> a pandemic, it seems. Uh, yeah. Oh, just mind, mind yourself, that's fine. It's kind of beer. Take your, take your time. There we go. Yeah, hey. I know. Yeah, I mean, that's the NHS for you, though. It's just all silos and there's no uniformed database and information or informatics at all that run through it. No, I don't know. He laid into uh, Bojo pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think I'm kind of with him on this one. There's a very profound question about the nature of our political system that means that we got at the last election a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. 
I think any system which ends up giving a choice between two people like that, as the people, people to lead, is obviously a system that's gone extremely, extremely badly wrong. There's so many thousands and thousands of wonderful people in this country who could provide better leadership than either of those two, and there's obviously something terribly wrong with the political parties if that's the best that they can do. Why did he work for him then? Yeah, what's his motivation? I think his motivate he would say his motivation was reform. Yeah, of uh, government. But you know, and pushing science and technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he's. <coughs> you know, if you were supposed, to, if you're going to play devil's advocate, then the obviously obvious repost to that is then why would you work for such a terrible leader? What's changed? I mean, how do you get things done? No, I know, yeah. I mean, he was, I presume he was asked. Yeah, yeah. Well, you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? How Mm. he got into this position. Mm. Sort of comes from the Brexit thing, doesn't it? Yeah, if you believe the stories. Well, he's been going on about the EU for well over a decade. Yeah. I've seen a talk he gave 10 years ago, talking about problems with the EU. So I think he's, honest is the wrong word. I think he's uh, authentic in that regard, that he, he sees the EU as just a giant bloated bureaucracy that fritters money yeah. away and doesn't get anything done. And I think he probably sees our civil service in the same light. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So he thinks, well, the only chance I can do to, you know, the chance I have to improve anything is to get into the heart of government where things actually matter, mm. where you can make th- changes. But maybe I'm giving him far too much credit. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know him. No. Say one thing, it's hard it would be hard to act for that length of time. Wouldn't it? For seven oh, hours. Think, well, yeah, I think he's um is he obviously yeah, he, I think he's an ideologue, isn't he? So you know, he has this I suppose most people are, but he you know, <laughs> he wants to push um his idea of government, I suppose. Um, but I think it's it's plainly obvious, isn't it, that he's um, fallen out with Bojo in a catastrophic manner. Um, was, and it, he, was it not over the girlfriend? Now oh, wife. Yeah. Now wife. Yeah. Carrie Simmons. Yeah. Well, that's the story, isn't it? A power play or something. Um, but, you know, he, he's done the same, hasn't he? Like if 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 you believe the things we like, like I just mentioned before, Sajid, Sajid, mm. Javid, um, you know, didn't want to bow down to him, so he, you know he was replaced by a patsy, wasn't he? Yeah, who was looked on favourably in his testimony. Yeah, yeah. and Savage Javid, uh, Savage, Savage Javid, as I like to call him, yeah. uh, whether you like him his politics or not, he was pretty well respected, I believe in the house as a competent guy, like a competent. That's all I want from (laughs) our rulers. It's just someone who's fucking competent, you know? Yeah. He's, um, I'm pretty sure. Did did he not, um, I'm not sure if he's old enough to have gone to a grammar school and done the 11 plus, but I think he's one of these conservatives that kind of came up from a working class background. Yeah. His dad was a bus driver. And he ended up going to work for like a 
working as a banker, didn't he? And yeah. made millions, and then he went into politics. Yeah, the older. He is yeah. savage, Javid. <laughs> um, there was there was a really uh, uh, I don't know what the word is. It's sort of funny and creepy and disturbing at the same time. But um, mm-hmm. Sky News, as this was happening, so it was broken up into two sessions: ses- sessions, the morning session, and then the the mm. afternoon session. And in the late morning, um, Sky News. Uh, bamboozled Hat Mancock on his way to oh. work just to get his uh, opinion on on the, on him being flayed. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure he handled this with charm and grace. Well, I haven't seen the uh, this performance oh. today. Performance, good work, good yeah. use of word there. Yeah, full. And instead, I've been dealing with getting the vaccination rollout going, especially to over 30s and, and saving lives. Uh, I'll be giving a statement in the House of Commons tomorrow, and I'll have more to say then. And saving lives. Yeah, horrible, isn't he? The audio doesn't do it justice. You need to watch this. Yeah. When it's, it's disturbing, when it, it's sort of... <laughs> He does the first part of his speech, he's, he's talking. But when he goes to the... And saving lives. His entire face, his posture, yeah, his cadence, everything changes. It's like a chameleon. It, everything it's, changes. His true side shows. His rehearsed... Oh, right, okay, yeah. I mean, it's... You have to watch it. It's bizarre. Yeah. Let's play the full thing again. Well, I haven't seen the uh, this performance. So, so it's half smiling there. Yeah. The uh, performance. Today in full. And instead I've been dealing with getting the vaccination rollout going, especially to over 30s and, and saving lives. Uh, I'll be giving a statement in the House of Commons tomorrow, and I'll have more to say then. He does a little pause mm. before to calibrate. Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm getting the vaccine, getting it rolled out to over thirties, and and saving lives. It, <laughs> there's something there. There's a there's a calibration, a trigger there. It's it's, it's weird. Yeah, it'll be a thing that he knows that he's been told to get into the statement, isn't it? Well, remember to say that you're saving lives by doing the vaccine. Put that in there, and it changes this because then I was thinking that when I've read read this." the story about that and the the quoted bit is and he replied by saying i'm saving lives well matt hancock's saving lives whilst he's lying to the select committees it's the story isn't it and sort of a virtual signal there as well obviously yeah yeah what about uh, i've just thought of a quick hot mix hang on well i haven't seen the uh this performance today in full and instead, I've been dealing with getting the vaccination rollout going, especially to over 30s and... Injected with nanobots. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And saving lives. <laughs> yeah, it's strange, bizarre. A very strange week. You know, mm. I could spend, like, two days mm. looking for things to do in this last hour. 
there's just so much going on every week. And some weeks you get to Thursday and it feels like nothing's happened. And then in two days, you just get all these crazy stories happening. It's weird. Yeah. It's strange. So, right. yeah, I'm uh, I'm spent, I think. Oh, hallelujah. You've got anything to add? How dare you? Good. I'm I doing all right there, then. I might go inside and have a... Began sausage roll. <laughs> <laughs> I went to uh, we went to the Broughton Inn yesterday. Nice. And I had I think it was called a squashage a squashage what roll? Is that square? It's round, but it's butternut squash. It's a vegetarian sausage roll. Why Why did you have that? Uh, I didn't like any of the starters. Oh right, it was a, well, it's, a it's okay for a starter. Yeah. That's fine. No, I had a burger. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really good. Good. The squashage roll. Nice. Right. Should we fuck yeah. off into the night? Uh, yeah. Do you want to make a phone call? Go for it. I don't mind. Bring it on. Stop. <laughs> 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 God. Well, the thing is, what you do, you call yeah. between the devil and the rock at a hard place. I'm just smashing the keypad. Making it sound like we use canned laughter. <laughs> Got uh, Dr. Serene Nehme next week. Oh, yes. Astrophysicist. If you've got any astrophysicist questions, my uh, my five-year-old said uh, he wants to know how the moon was made. Well, we've answered that tonight. Well, uh, yeah, smash. Hulk smash. Yeah. Planet smash. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if you've any more uh, astrophysics questions, get them sent in, and we'll ask Doctor Serene Nechme. Nechme. Well, we'll, we'll just ask her about all these coincidences, all these coincidences. Yeah. Should we ask her? Shall we gen up on the uh, dimensions of the moon and the Earth and the yeah. Sun and how they're yeah, all right, ratioed? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We can do that. I think I'll terms with the fact that I am fucking vegan. All right. Should we sign off then? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Alright, see you next week. Take Bye. care. Epstein didn't kill himself. Madness. Chris Shabalon. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Epic dub. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I'm a blind man. Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. The magic vaccine. Drink and I know things.